0: hey everybody larry wilmore here black on the air i am back on black on the air and uh really good show for you today i'm very excited the very talented judd apatow someone i've known for a long time actually in this business we started off doing comedy at around the same time approximately back in the day (laughs) and we really had fun reminiscing about those days and Talking about some fun stuff. So I think you're really going to enjoy that. Judd's got his hands in so many things. Worked with so many cool people, too, over the years. So we have a good conversation. A good showbiz combo for you people who like to hear the showbiz combo. Judd and I ended up speaking for a long time, so I don't have a huge intro today. The Matt Lauer thing, I have to say, has just been another one of these things that, um, you know, what's interesting about the Matt Lauer thing, as I interrupt myself, there are some things where people go, oh, man, not him. It's funny, the Matt Lauer thing, almost everybody was going, oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. I'm like, really? Wow. How many people knew he was a creep? That's what it seemed like, you know, like everybody just kind of had that reaction, like, whatever, you know. You know, I always thought a lot of people liked him, but apparently not. I think uh, people have... I guess had different feelings about him. I don't know, but the stuff he's accused of doing is just ridiculous. So many creeps that were. we're, It's weird how many people are. You just find out are just creeps. You know, they're just doing stuff that is not just inappropriate. It's just shocking behavior. Uh, But I wanted to uh, address a couple of things uh, before we get started. Um, One thing we have to congratulate ourselves. I'm going to pat myself on the back here. We were just picked by Time Magazine as one of the top ten podcasts of the year, number five. Thank you very much. Although (laughs) one of my producers here is upset that it was bought by the Koch brothers. Like, calm down, man. Why you got to tell me some shit like that and bring me down after I found out (laughs) we were number five? You got to tell me it's a Koch brothers number five. Which if you average it out, turns out to be a number eight because they're involved. So, But that still feels pretty good, you know. I'm sticking with number five. Very excited about that. Get the word out, you guys. If you enjoy Black in the Air, enjoy listening to it, let people know, you know. And um, also let me know on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, if there's people you want me to talk to, subjects you want me to tackle, things like that, let us know. I'm happy to do it. I have so much fun interviewing people, and I have so much fun interacting with all of you good folk out there and that sort of thing. So there's one other thing I want to talk about real quick. It's not that big a deal, but big news this week with the royals. You have uh, Prince Harry, who has announced uh, a royal engagement with American actress Meghan Markle, who happened to be on The Nightly Show, by the way. And I think she, Meghan hasn't done a lot of press, and they were actually using the clip of her on The Nightly Show, my old television show, for those of you that don't know, uh, to kind of show clips of her. And I was like, wow, that's kind of cool. And I actually got a call from a— I think a tabloid or something in England wanted to talk to me. I'm like, motherfuckers, I don't want to talk to you. I got nothing to say here. It's not like a like I'm, you know, childhood friends with Megan Marco have an insight. But I have to say, she was very nice on the show. She's a friend of uh, of Robin Thede actually, who was on our show, and we were all very impressed with Megan. I think the whole staff was smitten with her. You know, while she was there, she just has this air about her. It makes sense; she's going to be. Arroyo. She she really does have a certain kind of air about it. We were all smitten. But one of us in particular – I'm just going to mention So Tommy, who works here, Tommy was com- not only smitten by her, but I have to say Megan was kind of taken by Tommy. But here's what happened. So Tommy had left. He had to move to Cali to get his HBO Bill Simmons gig on, right? But he left right before Megan was gonna be on our show. And she said, all she could do while she was there was ask about Tommy. Where's Tommy, you know? I really enjoyed meeting Tommy. Where's Tommy? And we're like, what about us? <laughs> you know, We were all like jealous of Tommy. So then we had to tease Tommy the whole time. We're calling him, hey Tommy, when are you gonna go out with Megan, you know? We're trying to, I was teasing him the most, you know, because of course I'm living vicariously through him. I don't know if he ever texted her or something. Cause she's a very friendly person. She's very nice. I think they may have had some friendly exchanges back and forth. But it wasn't more than two months after that that, of course, she's on this blind date with the prince, for Christ's sakes. And when we found out that, I busted Tommy's balls for so long saying, hey, man, yo, man, prince swooped up your girl. I'm sorry. Sorry. You know, So we used to tease him about that. And now that she's actually becoming part of the royal family. Tommy he's just a sad man. He's a shell of his former self. But congratulations to them. It's some good news in all this stuff. You know what's good about it? Here's what's good about it. They look so happy together, you guys. As cynical as you want to be about whatever it is in the world, they look genuinely happy like they it it looks like two people that kind of found each other, you know. Well, anyhow, I'm very happy for them and um very sad for my boy Tommy. Sorry Tommy. All right. We're going to have a great talk with Judd Apatow coming up. But first, how about a little word from one of our sponsors? Welcome back. I am very excited to have, uh, man, a long time compatriot in the business. This guy's done everything. He's one of those people you really don't have to list his credits, but everything from the early days, the Ben Stiller show, classic, everything on TV from freaks and geeks, undeclared to girls in the movies, cable guy back in the day, (laughs) 40-year-old version. This is 40, which, by the way, I really love that movie. Oh, thank you. So interesting. Trainwreck, he's done everything. Mr. Judd Apatow. And a lot of people don't know him, Judd. I met you back in the day. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Good um, to be here. And the Big Sick is on Amazon Prime. I love the Big Sick, so you can get socks and watch the movie. Yeah, yeah, so that's very <laughs> nice. You, you can get Amazon Fresh too, and uh, you
1: can get a sandwich, yeah. socks. You get everything you need. It's a
0: whole experience now. Yeah, Judd is in the whole experience movie business these days. <laughs> I'm
1: embracing the future right now.
0: He wants people to be comfy <laughs> while they're while they enjoying <laughs> uh, an appetite flick. Yes, appetite entertainment. Uh, but we were just talking uh before we started here about uh i mean you've been in this business for so long you've done so many different things and i met you as a stand-up comic yes what year did i day. meet you what i think it was the late start? 80s like at igby's i had yeah. started uh, maybe mid 80s we're saying 80s people are like how old yeah. are these people
1: <laughs> doesn't but it suck it, that that's I the know. case now I know. because because for us if this was nineteen eighty-five, yes, we would be saying we met in 1955. I know. And to us that would seem like, are you kidding me? With get, Chuck Berry? Yeah, get out of here, Kresty
0: McCresty. With Dwight yeah. Eisenhower was president <laughs> yes. you guys met. Exactly. I remember like movies like Annie Hall and Woody Allen have like Eisenhower moments. I'm like, Eisenhower, how old is this guy? You know? know. Not thinking it was like maybe 17 years earlier or 15 oh.
1: years or whatever, you know. It's been a while. Yes, Igby's was a great club in West LA, actually right across the street from where we are yeah, right now. From your uh, and uh, Jan Smith ran that club. And what I always great remembered Jan. about it was, uh, you know, it was a great, great room, just configured really well. Yeah. And Jan had his own taste, which was different than the, the improv yeah. and the comedy store. Where you know you had to pick one or the other, but you also could do Igby's. For some yes. reason, if you did the comedy store, you could do the improv, but you it, could do Igby's. It, Igby's
0: <laughs> was more democratic. It was it was uh, those clubs. Comedy store and improv were very political. If you did yes. one, you really couldn't do the other. There were some people that crossed over. There was a certain personality that did each one. Yes.
1: Charles Fleischer could do it, but no one else.
0: Yes, exactly. Back in the day, and uh, those were fun days back then. They were so different. You know, did you did you see yourself as that was your path? Like back then, did you want to be like? A big stand-up comic is that the road you you
1: felt you run on back in the day when you were starting out it's funny because when you begin your your dreams are very vague uh-huh. so i wanted to be in comedy i loved right. comedians i was obsessed mm-hmm. and i just thought i gotta get in and i didn't know what in meant i yeah. knew that part of it was could i be a comedian right and then deep in the back of the head you think can i be bill murray or something right. like that like wouldn't that be great if i if along this journey yeah. i learned how to act and i you know whatever would have a sitcom or a movie but that was a dream that i didn't pursue uh-huh. i never took an acting class you know very early on uh, i i got discouraged from the idea of really? acting were you intimidated by it or anything or did you have a bad experience i had acting, a bad experience or? this guy walked up to me i was booking this comedy club Sammy's by the shore in Marina Del Rey. Like, I remember Sammy's by the shore. That was that was Sammy Shore. Sammy Shore used to
0: be the owner of the comedy store. Yes, until he lost it in a divorce to Mitzi Shore.
1: That's right. right. Right, and he started this little room, and I used to book it mainly just for stage time. Yeah, and someone saw me there, and I was really young. No, we, so were you doing? How, how old were you at this time? I was, I might maybe it was nineteen or twenty. Jesus. So, and you I started actually, at seventeen. You started
0: doing stand up at seventeen. Yeah. Okay,
1: and. I was booking it and someone came in and they said, uh, we think we we could put you in, you know, up for auditions for TV shows for pilots, Mm -hmm. but let me send you this acting coach Uh and, you know, see, you know, you know what you're capable of. And he sent me to this guy and he gave me a scene from the TV show, my sister, Sam. Wow. And it was I couldn't even understand where the jokes were. It was such a badly written scene that I couldn't even figure it out. (laughs) Right. Uh, Even though you didn't have a trained eye, you had taste at that point. You could tell if something was was worthy or not. And I I remember looking at it going, I can't even say this. It was like if someone asked you to play Mr. Roper in the scene. Yeah. I I just couldn't get a handle so far from how I spoke. Anyway, that acting coach told the agent that i couldn't act and then he didn't send me out and for some reason instead of going you know what i'm gonna learn now i'm gonna go take classes for a few years and learn this craft i just said no more acting and uh and that was it until now i'm in the disaster artist i I have one big scene in this james franco movie the disaster artist right and it was the first time where i thought i think i'm pretty good in that are you going to go back to the same acting teacher he is around. <laughs> Every once in a while, I, I hear his name. You discouraged me. I could
0: have had my own stripes by now. It's funny how when you're <laughs> starting out, you can get intimidated. I remember when I was first starting to do stand-up, I was like about the same age, 17, 18. I might have been still in high school, and I sneaked into the comedy store, and I remember seeing Richard Pryor trying out material. Wow. And I was so nervous. He was right next to me, I remember, <laughs> and he walked by. I was like, hey, and I was like, <laughs> like like a sound just came out. <laughs> oh wow! And I can remember sneaking into the main room, seeing Letterman, uh, whoa, emceeing one night. I remember seeing people like Jim J. Bullock. Remember him back in the what day? What year is this? Eighty? Yeah, this is like eighty. Wow. I I can remember seeing Jim Carrey when he first came into town, and I was here's the thing though, yeah. Doug. I was so intimidated. I thought. I remember seeing Michael Keaton on stage of the wow, comedy. Okay? Oh,
1: now you're dating yourself. Yes,
0: but I was so, well, I'm 56 years old, yeah. you know. But I was so intimidated. I thought, I can't do this. These people sure. are too good. That's you know? what I thought when It stopped I me from doing it for a good,
1: like, three or four years. I was studying theater at the time, so. Yeah, that's yeah. what I thought. I didn't even want to admit to anyone that I wanted to be a comedian. Yeah. Because I would interview them for my high school radio station, but I never told them I wanted to do it. It was yeah. obvious. But I would never even say it out loud, uh-huh. and I was always intimidated when I started out by how great people were. I wanted to sure. do it, and I wasn't going to give up. Uh, you know, I did it for seven years. Mm-hmm. You know, from eighty five to ninety two. Right. But I would watch Jim Carrey, and it it was like watching Radiohead. Yeah. You know? And it, it is like if you were starting a band, and you are like, could I be Radiohead? <laughs> and you would be so you wouldn't you'd just quit. And it, it really. Yeah. Uh, troubled me to see that level of imagination and how how daring Jim was. I mean, mm-hmm. Jim- And would, he
0: started off a little safer. When yeah. I remember when Jim first started off, he really did kind of straightforward impressions, but yeah. he- He was doing could Henry always, Fonda.
1: Yeah. He <laughs> was doing a, a Golden yeah. Pond bit.
0: He would always <laughs> contort his face and do that. But there wasn't anything else weird about it, you know? Except and his face. He, he had a show called The Duck Factory. Do you remember that? I, I do. That was yeah. his big break. That was his big break. And then the show got canceled and people thought he was yeah. done. And then he, and then he did a
1: once-bitten that vampire right, movie, and then right. and then he really thought his career was done. People and thought,
0: okay, you're really done now. Yeah, you You've had done two a big TV shots. Show, you did a movie. You're
1: 22 years old. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> right, it's over. I know. <laughs> and then he disappeared. And then he came back. And that's when I first saw came him. Came back and, in Living Color. And he right before in Living Color, he started doing stand up. And he decided to improvise his entire set yes. every night. Right. And it was the funniest, most yes. exciting thing to he watch. Stopped,
0: he stopped caring. Yeah. He honestly stopped caring. He used to do that dinosaur thing where he'd yes. walk around on stage like a T-Rex or yeah, he would something. He do post-nuclear war Elvis. <laughs> yes, yes. Which was really incredible. Right. There was so... Back in those... It's funny to think about this. Like, I remember seeing Bobcat for the first time. Bobcat yes. Gothwaite. Like, people don't appreciate stand-ups like that, where they were doing something completely different. Sure, he
1: did like political social commentary, but this crazy character. I was telling yeah. someone the other day that when I used to watch Bobcat at Igby's, yeah, I don't remember seeing him at the Improv. I, I saw store, him mostly
0: at Igby's. Yeah,
1: and, but he was a big Igby's guy. Yeah, there was an era where there were guys like that taking massive chances with characters, completely, and there was almost nothing more exciting than watching. Bobcat, yeah, do that bit because he was really I, saying
0: something while he was
1: doing oh, it. It was too, yeah. hysterical and exciting and demented. Yeah. And there are very few people who can get on stage and do something that really grabs you by your collar and yeah. blows your mind. A lot of people are smart, insightful. A lot of people are very personal. Mm-hmm. But you know, back in the day when you'd go to the club and it was Kinnison, yeah, and it was Dice, and there were people like Jim right. blowing roof off the place with these huge choices and, and th- scary sometimes like the crowd did not like it completely sometimes. i
0: mean kennison used to go on last at the comedy store because yeah. he'd drive people out oh, like yeah. he started getting laughs after years of doing that you know gilbert godfrey same thing sure. you know i love close shows because yeah. people were like who why is this guy screaming his whole set <laughs> gilbert it's yeah. people like comics we would always be in the back laughing
1: at gilbert While the audience was like quizzically looking at
0: him, why is he talking like that? First time I saw
1: and he walked half the room at this benefit for Comic Relief, and the other half—it was basically all the women left, all the men stayed, and and then the place just exploded. Yeah, Uh, you know, then it would change as it got weirder. But I love that era. Did you have any idols back then, or people who you thought, okay,
0: that's it—if I—if I I could do that, that's what I'm talking about—or people who. You just really admired in those days. Well, when
1: I was in high school, I used to go to the city, to Caroline's, Mm -hmm. and I went to see, I remember the people I went to see there because I was underage. It was the one place I could get it. Yeah. I went to see Charles Fleischer, Mm -hmm. Howie Mandel, Gilbert Gottfried, Seinfeld, Leno, Pee Wee Herman, and Harry Anderson. Wow. Those were the shows I went to. Wow, yeah. And Seinfeld in 83, 84... it was an incredible yeah. set. And that w- I worked as a producer on his last special yes, which where he I did saw, that set. Way, which is brilliant, yeah. And it was amazing to like, it was a real full circle moment for me to help out just a little bit on his special Yeah, after obsessing over that same act when I was back? in high school. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I literally felt like this is so weird. And he, and he said it too because I interviewed him when I was 16 for my high school radio station that there was wow. something beautiful about Working on the special when he was one of the main reasons I wanted to be a comedian. It was it was every word he said killed in that when he did that set in
0: 83, 84. I don't know what's interesting about and I love that special by the way in Seinfeld. What's interesting about especially from a comedy writer's point of view, let alone performer, is how technical Jerry was. Sure, you know, and a lot of people don't know this about stand up how planned so many things can be. Yeah, you know, even pauses. Can be planned, you know, or at least can be worked out, Mm -hmm. you know, and that sort of thing. And with Jerry, even the word the is important in his joke, you know, and the placement of words and the rhythm of a sentence, you know, is so important. And he's one of those people where you I've noticed like with Jerry, once a joke is done, it's done. And then
1: you move on to another one, <laughs> right? And but, then it's all about it's him like enjoying the performance of yes, it. Yes, exactly. Like, like he gets a great yeah. bit. He's playing Freebird every night. Yes, it's true <laughs> though. It's yeah. true. Yeah.
0: Because that joke just works. Like it's amazing. There's like this alchemy about jokes that's weird because it's like Once a joke works, it just works and it works for every audience. I don't understand why that is.
1: Yeah. I just did a Netflix special. Yeah. And uh, which stand up special. It's a stand up special, which is uh, they're releasing December 12th. Congratulations. uh, Which is, you know, beyond a dream for me. Mm -hmm. I never dreamed past being on the HBO Young Comedian special.
0: Didn't you do Carnegie Hall also?
1: I did Carnegie Hall a couple of years ago. That's pretty awesome. And that was, that was great. Yeah. I can't say I was ready, but I did do it. (laughs) Yeah, but you, you did
0: it. I mean,
1: when I did it, like it Mm -hmm. went well, you know, Mike Birbiglia came and 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 opened up, which obviously I should be opening for him, but it was just a favor. And then after I was done with my set, Uh which I thought went great, I had Adam Sandler come out as a surprise guest, mainly because I was nervous that I wouldn't have been worth it to the crowd. Right. And, the, the funny part about it was that Sandler's laughs were so much bigger than mine. Yeah. I thought my laughs were a 10. Yeah, you're like, he, I'm, I'm crushing it. <laughs> I'm crushing it. He comes out, <laughs> they're double. I'm like, oh, wait, those were fives? I didn't realize the capacity yeah. for laughter there. But in putting together a special, it does force you to lock in your language. Yes. Because I'm not. Tight on the language every night. Even if a joke works, I I, I dance around it just for my own amusement yeah. and to stay interested. And I did have to try to do a Seinfeld and work every night to go, okay, what is the best version of this line? Yeah, which is really hard work. Because then even the comic that seems like the loose
0: expressionist comic, like a Robin Williams, even in that type, people don't realize there's still an economy. Of words and everything and you know? of mm-hmm. there's there's a certain economy to what they're doing even though it's disguised in this other thing yeah you know?
1: and, and it's rare for me that i i come up with a type of language that's as concise as some of the the greats that i look up to right like there's yeah. a line that i do w- which makes me laugh it's just very simple mm-hmm. but it, i i sometimes think oh this is how i'm supposed to tighten all this up which is i just talk about how my daughter who's 15 doesn't love living with me and my wife now that her Uh older sister left Uh like it's a drag for her to be alone in the house yes because four people as a family and three people is a child observing a weird couple. <laughs> and I think, right. oh, yeah, that's kind of a tight little thought. Yes. But usually I'm just babbling. <laughs> that's hilarious.
0: And you just don't even think about that. This is supposed to be a joke Joe. Exactly. It's like it's not therapy right now. It's not, yeah. it's not really reflections. They really are jokes. I you know. know, yes. You have to yes. hone,
1: hone them in.
0: Yes, I always think a joke it's the funniest thing is the shortest amount of
1: words yes. is what I feel a joke is, you know. It was great to do uh-huh. a special because I I always you know in my head I always want my heroes mm-hmm. to do the special i want them to do stand-up again yeah that i'm anybody's hero but like the people i love Mm -hmm. like jim carrey or like any murphy yeah uh uh, sandler started doing stand-up again and it's really fun and exciting to see him fully engage and write tons of new songs and new stand-up he was a funny stand-up oh my god is he so funny and we go up at largo sometimes and before his set just on stage i'll just talk to him for 20 minutes Mm -hmm. and none of it is written and he's so hysterical off the top of his head. Yeah. You could just say, How is Halloween? And he just will tell he's, you a 10-minute story. He's just funny. Adam Sandler's just funny. But I, I yeah. felt like, oh, this is the moment at this age, I'm about to turn 50, where I can get crusty. <laughs> and You found your character. Right? <laughs> and, and, and that made me, you know, it, it, it fires up your, all your brain cells, to yeah. your neurons to put yourself in that position and to connect with an audience like, oh, this is what they're thinking about.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes what's interesting about, I think what you're saying, sometimes it takes a while for, like performers to give themselves permission to tell the truth, you know, and by and when I say tell the truth, I mean to really be exactly who they are, yeah, and not what who they think they should be or this version that they think is right for entertainment, this sure. thing we kind of this yeah. thing we make of ourselves, you know and uh and it's interesting when that happens and talent gets involved but you also have skill at this point too i mean you've been mm-hmm. around for so long yeah so that must be fun to perform so fun. it must feel
1: so free at this point right it does because i don't have to worry about eating yes i don't so, think you have to worry about that and that was always <laughs> right. terrifying to me was i i need to get bud friedman to allow me to work at the improv yeah to eat And so the pressure when you audition for him, which is oh, this is life changing. Right. If I can get this one person to like me, uh,
0: produces excellence. You know, but sometimes Mm -hmm. the absence of that can produce the same type of thing in a different way. Sure, it it, it, you can
1: melt from it, and there are people uh, who avoid those situations because it's too intense for them. Yeah. Right. And now I feel like. You know, people know me somewhat in a, in the perfect amount. Like mm-hmm. they don't like me that much, right? I'm not when I walk in, and I get like a nice round of applause. I'm like, oh wow, that's fun. The Judd's here, right, but right, then right. Chris Rock walks in, and you go, oh, that was two percent of the applause that Chris Rock got right. like it really it literally makes me laugh hysterically I love I, how much of your life is judged by applause from an audience Ah, exactly <laughs> exactly but it is a perfect space for stand-up because I'm not yeah. really getting that much of a lift mm-hmm. of a head start right but also the crowd knows me a little bit and they know my movies so when I'm talking it feels like an extension of this is 40 or knocked up yeah like they know I'm talking about the same sure. family they, they, and right all that. exactly and they
0: know who you are from your work now you made a decision to not pursue stand-up in terms of just doing that, and you went into television writing mm-hmm. and producing and that sort of As thing. As did you. Do you remember what that – yes, I did. And Because I, you I,
1: were doing Bernie Mac when we were doing
0: Undeclared. That's right. We were doing it at the same time, which actually was a few years later – Then when we started, cause I started kind of in living color and you did the Ben Stiller show. And I was writing sketches for in
1: living color for Jim, but I couldn't get on staff. So Jim gave me five grand and I was just a broke young comic. And he would come over to my apartment where I lived with Sandler, who was a, had a, he had a little money because he was on remote control on MTV, <laughs> That's great. and and I remember Jim would come over <laughs> uh-huh. and we would write sketches, yeah and we wrote like the Vero de Milo sketch. I remember those. Yeah. We wrote the Dicky Peterson, oh, you know, God. the guy who would protect the Seven Eleven, even uh, though they didn't want protection. Sure. Uh, there was a great one that we wrote, which I liked, where he was a self-defense uh, instructor who kept saying to his students, come at me with this knife and I'll show you what to do. And then they would just stab him. <laughs> and But then I would go in and I would always go meet with Keenan. Yeah. And then he just wouldn't hire me. Yeah. And I always felt it was because Jim was so freaking funny that they didn't want this guy to have more bullets in his gun. There definitely could have been <laughs> a threat there. Yeah, Because you didn't yeah. want to do the multicultural show where the white guy was dominating. And <laughs> Jim always Finally, that. we got black people on <laughs> television. The white guy is the best. No! It's like a huge mistake. You're like, we're yeah. going to show that we deserve our own show, and then suddenly you hired Jim Carrey. Yes,
0: exactly. <laughs> Who saw that coming? We thought your career was over. What's wrong
1: with you? Why are you so funny now? You know? and I, ne- I never could get on. And Jim did have the, also a level of energy yeah. to get on and to write sketches that must have been really rough for the show to handle well let me tell
0: you something about jim carrey jim jim carrey was like no creature i had ever seen because we would have a packet of like 25 30 sketches because we would shoot two and a half episodes at once you know and you didn't know what yeah. sketches were going to make it or whatever so the actors would be reading these sketches cold at the table mm-hmm. you know and sometimes some people would just read it like this, and you're like great they're killing my sketch that's what you <laughs> think as a writer but jim carrey would have a full-blown character wow. like three-dimensional character yeah. with voice inflection mm-hmm. perfect and you know he would look the part for
1: in a cold region sure. i had never
0: seen anything like
1: that yeah he's mm-hmm. so brilliant and so committed and gives it a thousand percent i used to punch up movies uh-huh. so jim would get a movie and then he would pay me uh or have someone pay me to come to his house every weekend to punch up the work for the week wow and so i would spend yeah. the whole summer uh at his at his uh you know his his place uh-huh. looking at like the coming weeks liar liar scenes or the coming yeah. weeks <laughs> bruce almighty scenes yeah and i have worked with a lot of people in this business no one worked worked as hard as jim yeah no one tried to squeeze every laugh every emotional sure. moment out of a scene and no one cared as much as him, just obsessively No, Jim, he would, he'd be in the office
0: till like three in the morning sometimes. Yeah. I remember uh, writing sketches and that sort of thing. He was very committed. I know that you, uh, Gary Shanling was very important, I yeah. think, in your career
1: too. You did the Larry Sanders show yeah. early on too. And I just made a four-hour documentary about Gary.
0: Do you think people don't appreciate how funny Gary was? I
1: th- Is he underrated, that- do you think? I think that, in a way, he was a bit of a slightly forgotten, uh, you know, original innovator of comedy. In many different platforms, too, yeah. I mean, his stand-up was incredible and really got... Stronger and stronger because he started out as almost like a swinging singles comedian. <laughs> you know, a lot of, it's hard to imagine <laughs> Gary Shilling is that, but yeah. <laughs> but that was like his thing, like bad dating stories, right? Things like that, yeah. And awkward moment type things. And yeah. then he got more and more personal when he did this special in '92. He tells these ten-minute stories about uh visiting the White House and how he found his dog, and yeah. it, that was an amazing special. Mm-hmm. But you know, he did something that no one else did. He reinvented television twice yes he did he, he did it's Gary Shandling show which uh in that era people weren't that experimental TV was like mm-hmm. it was like all those sitcoms it, you know it looked you know like Three's Company every show looked like Three's Company yeah. and Gary blew it wide open right uh and then you know most of that staff went on and did The Simpsons it, it was Sam Simon and yeah. Mike Reese and Al Jean that's right and Mike and Al are in the documentary and they said that working with Gary inspired so much of what they did in The Simpsons. Yeah.
0: And Alan Bill, who ran that show. Yeah, Alan who created who's, who's from, it with him from uh, Saturday Night Live. Yes, exactly. And so, uh,
1: you know, they were an incredible team making that show and then Gary got frustrated by the fact that it was a little bit of a cartoon yeah. and he wanted to go deeper and really talk about the way humans behave. Yeah. And so, um, he created The Larry Sanders Show with Dennis Klein and then... Really created the template Mm
0: -hmm.
1: for single camera television. Yeah, he really did. Long before The Office, long before the
0: self conscious type of observational comedy. I call it fly on the wall type of comedy in some ways, you know. And also, he mixed forms too, where you had a film show, but you had that video tap. Yeah. You know, Frankenheimer and some of the early TV directors did like Manchurian Candidate and things like that. So he even played around with
1: how things looked i think it was very influenced by uh patty chayefsky chayefsky too Uh, you know when i look at the show and i don't know what gary watched but i go this reminds me of network it reminds me of the hospital it reminds me of saint elsewhere and nypd
0: blue all those were influences i believe gary was more intellectual i think than people gave him credit for
1: how well did did you know shannon were you good friends with him yeah i i met him when he asked me to write jokes for the grammys in 1991 wow and I thought you meant about comic relief. You know, I probably met him there, uh-huh. but I didn't know him. And then he was looking for jokes. Uh-huh. And then one day I got a call, uh, and they said, "Okay, Gary needs jokes." And I was uh, I was writing. Yeah. I was I was I was at the Dallas Improv, uh-huh. uh, and it was the first day of the Gulf War in 1991. I always remember because wow. that was the day the war started. Yeah. And then I got a call from Gary, and I stayed up all night writing jokes wrote as many as I could Uh so that he would feel the need to keep me. So I said, I'm going to overproduce right now. And that's the main advice I give people. Overproduce. If someone says, send me some jokes, don't send 20, send 80. Yes, (laughs) And and then Gary took me to New York Uh and let me hang out during rehearsals. And there were so many incredible moments. One of the best ones was me and Gary sitting with Dennis Miller Uh and just to work on his monologue. So it was just a writing session, but Dennis Miller was so insanely funny, mm-hmm. and it was just for me as a comedy fan because yeah. I'm I'm a barely working comic at mm-hmm. the time, uh, you know I'm the MC I'm not even the middle of, on the of, on the road of the improv right uh, to watch Dennis Miller and Gary Shandling kick around jokes and I always remember this joke that Dennis Miller Smiths in completely different ways oh yeah, yeah. And, and Dennis right. Dennis said this joke off the top of his head. And I I always found it funny because the second he said it, I knew he regretted giving it to Gary. Uh Like he he wanted to keep it for himself. But he said, yeah, Sinead O'Connor's, you know, she's really stressed out. I'm beginning to think her hair fell out. Yeah. (laughs) And and Dennis was on fire. You know, so just being allowed to watch this stuff. Me and Gary, we were hanging around and uh I see Bruce Springsteen at the rehearsal. Uh-huh. And I said, Gary, we're gonna take a picture with Bruce Springsteen now because you're the host of the Grammys and we're allowed to make these That's requests. <laughs>
0: you're, you're, you're the little devil on his shoulder. <laughs> right. You can do it, Gary. Go talk to the
1: boss. And then, mm-hmm. you know, then you're the host, <laughs> he's
0: just the boss. No, he
1: was so <laughs> funny. And and then he, I mean, he did a cameo on the pilot of the Ben Stiller show, which I think uh-huh. is partially why it got picked up. Mm-hmm. Then when that got canceled, he asked me to write for Larry Sanders. And then one day he walked to my office and he said, you're directing the next one. Wow. Without me ever asking. Really? And so, and then he read every script I ever wrote, uh-huh. gave me real notes, watched cuts. He was kind of a mentor. Oh, way. he was. Yeah, yeah, he was. And I feel like my mentoring is very much influenced mm-hmm. by the fact that Gary took care of me. And it felt like, oh, this is what we're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Someone helps us. And then we pass it on. Is that to someone else? Kind of your philosophy as a producer? Do you
0: look at is it you're not just making something, but because you kind of people have thought you've kind of had like a troop of sorts over the yeah. years. You know, people you've worked with a lot. Is sure. it that's because you you trust those people? Are you like bringing people up and that type of thing? What is your what is, do you have a philosophy around that or anything?
1: I a lot of it I think was unconscious. I didn't mm-hmm. think it through, but. You know, when I met Seth Rogen, you know, he was 16 years old. Wow. And I thought, God, this guy is so funny. And then as yeah. I started reading his writing, I th- I thought, I'm going to hire him on Undeclared as a writer. Mm-hmm. And he was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then suddenly he was like among the best writers on the show at 18. That's amazing. And I I think, you know, part of it was from Gary. Like, this is how it works. Mm-hmm. You find people you think are great. And it's yeah. really fun to... Collaborate with them because they're so great. It's not like you're doing them a a favor. Right. You're also getting so much out of it. And Mm. it's a great feeling to... Help people figure out what to do with this gift that they already have.
0: That's how Steve Martin broke in. Uh, he was uh, on the Smothers Brothers, but yeah. he was kind of being paid on the side because they thought he was too weird. Yeah. And uh, one of the writers took him under his arm, and he would pay Gary. Him, he would pay Steve directly. Wow, you know. And then after a while,
1: they thought, okay, you're funny, you know. We'll and that's playing, what Jim Carrey you know? did for me at, at yeah, at in *Living Color*. You know, so I was on the sure. outside. Yeah, I couldn't get in. But I did think, oh, wait a second, I can write a good sketch. I just saw him murder with it. Yeah. And the same thing happened at SNL. I couldn't get on SNL. I would write sketches over the phone with Sandler. Right. And I would write, like, you know, his Halloween weekend update, crazy spoonhead sketch. And and I would get things on every once in a while. And it made me go, oh, I'm good enough. I can't even convince anyone to give me the job, but I, I clearly doing this correctly it's got
0: to be encouraging for people on the outside because i'm sure you get asked all the time how do you get into the business yeah. you know and that type of thing what would be your advice to those type of people just keep doing it who don't listen to people i always tried to
1: tell people that they need to realize that most people are terrible <laughs> and if you really were work- terrible Talent wise, are just terrible. Uh, well, Temperament wise, well, well, now we're both. learning there are really terrible people. Yes. That's what's in the news every day. But most people aren't good. So if you look at every uh-huh. year, how many good movies are there every year? It's not like a number that's astronomical. Yes. How many great comedians are there? Well, you, you know, you might have like twenty or thirty that you really like. Sure. Uh, so if you just work on being great, it's going to happen, and you don't have to obsess on like what the doorway in is. Yeah. If you're great. Work on the craft. Yeah. And you know, yeah. you could just upload a short onto Funnier Die. You could just put yeah. your stand-up up on uh, on on YouTube. And you know, when we started, what, what were we gonna do? I remember like making dupes of VHS tapes, yeah. sending them to like bookers <laughs> in the Midwest. And sure. It, it's it was so much more difficult to get seen. I remember one
0: casting director, this is this is back in the 80s when I was, you know, trying my hand at act as an actor and all that stuff. And he said, You should learn how to break dance. And I go, what? And he goes, that's just, that's a big thing right now. You should hilarious. learn how to do that. I'm like, really? I should learn how to break dance. Not, not you should learn how to break down a character properly yeah. or, you know, or think about You should learn how to break dance. Yeah. Thanks, Mr. Casting Director. Because you'd hear that every once in a while, like
1: a, a weird piece of advice Mitzi Shore gave. Someone like, you need a puppet. Oh, yeah, I remember that. That was a famous line she said yeah. that to. I forgot who she said that to. But, yeah. Well, it's, this documentary about Gary, it really explores all these questions it'll be on in march on uh hbo oh wow okay uh, mm-hmm. but it and it's it's very slow it, it goes deep it's like the bob dylan documentaries sure. and gary kept journals uh-huh. of his during his whole career mm-hmm. and so you know when when you're wondering what he was thinking we actually have it interesting and yeah. uh and, and and he's also just so funny i mean yeah i was able to just watch all of his sets with all the jokes he never did anywhere except at the Comedy Magic Club. Yeah. And within it are these incredible jokes. He had one joke where he said, you know, I got no issues with, uh, with uh, immigrants in America. I wish George Lopez could come up right now and take over the sets.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: oh, man. I, I really miss voices like Shanling Zoom. One thing I wanted to ask you about is your, your producing style, too because I know you use a lot of improv when you do films and mm-hmm. that type of stuff. Do you have a philosophy around that? Are you trying to find like um, more meaning, or are you just trying to find better jokes? Because cause there's two different mm-hmm. tacks in that, or is it like a combination of stuff? Are you just, you know, do you have a? I I know your movies aren't like Curb, where you just have an idea yeah. of what scenes are and that sort yeah. of thing, but I know that you do find a lot while you're making the movie as well, too. Right?
1: Well, I always feel like... The actor has a lot to give,
0: mm-hmm.
1: so I'm sure you know this from working with Eddie Murphy when he comes mm-hmm. in to do a record sure. for the, the BJs. Right. You're gonna let him do his thing, correct? And he's gonna top what you have, yes, a fair amount of the time. If you're working yes. with with someone who has an inventive mind, I, I really respect playwrights who can write a movie and not change a word. Mm-hmm. Although sometimes I find it, it's a little stiff. Mm-hmm. I could feel the. It's a special type writing. of talent.
0: You're David Mammoth's. Those type of people whose the words are yeah. almost music the way that it's yes. it's in there for and, specific reasons. Yeah,
1: And I'm happy they're not riffing during Raising Arizona. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. yeah. So right. I, I respect that, but I think I'm a little more of a, a combination of what Harold Ramis and Reitman and John Landis did mm-hmm. and, and people like Robert Altman where... You're trying to make something come alive. And I would watch, Mm -hmm. you know, the first time I saw someone do it was Stiller. Mm -hmm. So we would do a sketch and then he would just keep going. Yeah. So if he had a line, he would just try tons of stuff. And I didn't even know what it meant. And
0: his parents, of course, were one of the greatest improv teams, comedy teams, Stiller and Mirror. He he
1: must have understood something from his experience with his parents and just understanding comedy that I had never even heard of. Yeah. We would do these sketches where he would, you know, play Tony Robbins yeah, and we'd have this, you know, like this, the lines, but then yeah. he would just go, he would just then do 20 more minutes and I'd throw him ideas. Right. And then when I did the Larry Sanders show, Gary did a variation of that, which is in standing rehearsals where they're really like walking the set. Mm-hmm. He would keep it very loose. And if anyone had ideas, I mean, it wasn't really an improv, but it was just, yeah. you were allowed to look for things. Yeah. And I realized, Oh, you can do that improv with drama. Mm-hmm. And you know, for me, I do a lot in rehearsals where I'll say, "Okay, let's forget the script. Let do the exact same scene with the exact same intentions, mm-hmm. but don't do any of the scene." So, would you? Did you have many rehearsals, or did you not want to
0: rehearse much and save that spontaneity for filming? Or I
1: would do the rehearsals. Mm-hmm. So, but you would stick to the script in rehearsal, kind no, of. No, I would do. Okay. I, sometimes I would start. You know, the one thing I've done a few times is I would know I was shooting a movie. I would know that my script was about at 60%, mm-hmm. but I would just start reading it out loud. Yeah. I guess Mike Lee does like movies where the entire script is written in extended rehearsals over months. Mm-hmm. And so I might sit with a scene where, you know, Seth and uh Catherine Heigl are, are, are having dinner and she's going to tell him that she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So I have something that I really need to tell you is kind of why I called you. (laughs) Here it goes. Um, I'm pregnant. Fuck off. What? What? I'm pregnant?
1: With emotion?
0: With a baby. You're the father.
1: And there's so many ways he can react to that. Sure. So she says, I'm pregnant. And so now you go, all right, I might write something. So maybe the line in the script is with emotion. And and then you know, ultimately what he said in the movie was, fuck off. Uh Because he had some instinct that his character would react that way. And it's 10 times funnier. I think both lines are in the movie. Is that she's like, I'm pregnant. Fuck off. Which is just the worst thing a man can (laughs) say, right? Right. But I didn't think of it at night alone. Yeah. And so I love that. You're getting
0: some other character insight in yes. that moment because the actor's pulling from their point of
1: view yes and they're there because they're able to do that right that they're a you know robert Smigel played uh paul uh, rudd's best friend in this is 40 and i knew yeah. that if they just sat around talking about how they felt about their wives yes that all sorts of stuff was going to come up right and as long as it's on my theme and it's in character the observation I have may not be as good as the one that they might reveal. And you're counting to me. on
0: that type of dialogue, or what's happening there isn't going to affect the story, you know, or isn't yes. going to affect something that maybe you've already shot. Like there's yeah. another scene coming up. And if so, what it's giving is a little more, a deeper meaning to something, or as well as being funnier or that type
1: of thing. And a little bit of electricity because when actors aren't sure if the other actor is going to say the scripted line, they listen differently okay and so uh. you can get in a little groove because you know yeah. your scene. but the second you you think oh he may not say that normally he might out of the blue start yelling at me yeah. you're really acting you're <laughs> right. reacting right but usually what happens is we write the script we make the scene as great as we can make it we shoot it mm-hmm. but then we play and then you hit editing and you have both yeah and every once in a while someone says something we were watching uh This The the clip from The Forty Old Virgin where Leslie yells at Craig Robinson, the doorman. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the great moment is where she just starts going, you're just a doorman. Doorman, doorman, doorman. (laughs) And that only happened because Leslie ran out of improvs. Right. That's very funny. She just starts saying doorman over and over again. (laughs) But we realize, oh, you know, it's this combination of scripted and and... You know, we make sure we get the point of the scene right. But right. I, I, I understand. Gary yeah. always said like he wanted to create a space where you had the script, but that something other would happen that was magic. Yeah. Just it, it might even just be a look. It might it, but sure. but you want those actors to lose themselves somehow. Yeah. That's interesting. And for comedy
0: it's 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 great too because as you say, you know, they may come up with something funnier. Have you ever had like a a story point come up that was like a huge story thing that the actor improvised It made you rethink even what the what the thing was even about
1: well katherine heigl started improvising things about knocked up yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. the fact that she felt like she didn't have motherly instincts like her concern that she wouldn't be a good mother and it was so interesting yeah but we were it was too late in the shoot to explore it right but i thought oh, wow, oh that's wow, a wow. great little wrinkle yeah. and a thing that is very common among both men and women which is when the baby comes am i gonna know what i'm doing right uh, and that panic yeah. so it does come up and sometimes you can you, you can apply it uh it's fun in television because you could write the next episode about it right when right, right. someone tells you that but like right. what was eddie murphy like when he would come in and do records
0: eddie was actually pretty cool with us during records because. He actually didn't want to do too much. Yeah. He and he loved the scripts that we wrote. Yeah. So he played around a little bit, but not that much. For me, yeah. the challenge was getting him to do like second takes. Yeah. Because you know, in animation, sometimes you may just need a little something. Sure. So I would always have to find ways to, get, yeah. to try to. We cut had a technical it. problem there, Eddie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we, fr- we forgot to hit record. Say, Eddie, what did you think? <laughs> I think I can do better. Okay, okay. Like I would appeal yeah. to his ego, but I have to tell you that, and you've experienced this too. We're so lucky because you don't really appreciate how funny someone is until you work with them sometimes. Like, yeah. like, I always knew Eddie was funny, but until I actually worked with him, I'm like, oh my God, this is like the funniest person on the
1: earth. Yeah. I mean, he was hilarious. When you see it up close. And also, yes. when you write something for someone yes, and you see someone make it so much better than what's yeah. on the page, like, I really. Bernie st- Mac
0: was like that. Yeah. I mean, Bernie Mac. Bernie was amazing.
1: Every once in a while, I just think. Nobody's as funny as Bernie Mac, right? Bernie was amazing. <laughs>
0: he cuz he he was not only funny, he had this ability to emote too, you sure. know, to really make it all real yeah. and everything. I
1: think the yeah. world feels the loss of
0: Bernie Mac. Oh,
1: completely. Absolutely. Like you wish he was here for all of this. Oh, completely. Stuff, especially now. Yeah. yeah. Uh mm. I, yeah, I think that um one of the great things I got to watch was Dan Castellaneta do Homer Simpson because uh-huh. I, I I wrote uh, a, a one Simpsons episode like yeah. twenty five years ago. I was going
0: to say there's a famous story around yeah. that,
1: right? You wrote it years ago. It yeah. was just, I wrote a spec <clears> one <throat> to try to get in the business. So yes, you, you know, you write an episode as a sample, right? And it actually got me a job on the TV show The Critic. Yeah, uh, but Run out back. of the blue, they said, "Hey, w- w- we'll make it." And they, you know, of course, they rewrite almost all of it. Although I, you know, the soul of it really was the same story. And they let me come to, you know, the records and the table read and pitch around a little bit. But I got to watch them record it, which Mm -hmm. I I assume that uh, you've seen that at some point. Well, I haven't seen The Simpsons. But uh, it was literally what it was like to me, I kept thinking this is like watching them shoot the honeymooners. Like these are the funniest, smartest people I've ever seen doing this voice work. It looks like a magic trick probably yeah <laughs> you, you, you couldn't even believe it like yeah. you know like uh nancy writes, like reading the paper or like you know, she's sewing or something <laughs> Then she looks up and does her line perfectly yeah. and then makes it even funnier and then looks back down and reads the paper yeah. and dan castellanetta I, I i kept thinking he deserves every penny he gets this is yeah, this brilliant. is one of the great comic achievements this is literally up there with like the tramp this is so remarkable and that is what i live for in the writing is finding someone i felt that way with amy schumer when we were shooting like wow she is so great yeah and
0: train wreck really pulled out the things that were special about her i thought um i thought i you know i'm a big fan of yours it's just been for years i thought train wreck and big sick are such special films that you've done because i th- you know they were people the performers were brought out in special ways that have made them almost instant classic type of movies for that performer mm-hmm. yeah you know and you that must have been a special feeling knowing that that's happening or even if you can't feel it you as you're doing it you know yes you know what i mean yes, it's, it's like, so exciting the big yeah. seg we
1: worked on for half a decade I yeah mean, they, they wrote for years yeah that started that writing process started the same time as train wreck yeah And we knew it was a hard premise because a lot of it takes place at the hospital. A lot of it is really sad.
0: It's very sad, yeah.
1: And so it's not inherently hilarious. Like, hey, I got this movie. It's about a coma, but it's also (laughs) about Muslim immigrants. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, It doesn't reek of entertainment. Funny stuff, everybody. And they (laughs) wrote such a beautiful personal story. yeah. Emily and Camille have this amazing sense of humor and Michael Showalter is such a great director who understands that tone Yes, where it's it stays real in a James Brooks, Barry Levinson way Yes, or right. Cameron Crowe, but it knows how to be funny in a human way that is always honors the characters and the story. Yes, it knows how to soar
0: above the drama just enough yes. to not lose that as the foundation but give us relief from it at the right time. So. And so much of it is yeah. casting, you know, and Kamel's at the right point in his career to pull it off i think too.
1: Yeah there's always yeah. like a moment like you said where yeah. people they can strip their thing down yes. and expose themselves. So right. right? Amy was ready for that, Camelle was ready for that. And uh, and then you know when you bring someone like Ray Romano in Oh he's so great. He found-
0: I love watching everything he does now.
1: He's such right. a good actor. Yeah. But he also he you believe that he's the guy that would deal with his daughter being in a coma by yeah. making nervous jokes. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a magic trick with that where you go well how do you make this like not the most depressing movie ever oh you have the Mm -hmm. guy who's like obsessing over it in a way that's comedic Mm -hmm. to survive it
0: yeah um and i also another thing i want to cover with you um and thanks so much for sitting here (laughs) i know you're so busy and everything but you also have another voice these days too on Mm -hmm. twitter you know and and i've seen you over the past few years and and I know that's kind of an outlet for you, too. And I just wanted to get your take on a couple of these things. Too. Sure, like, of course. Just on the whole Trump thing. Like, mm-hmm. where does that, <laughs> what is going on? I mean, uh, is is this like, do you think it's a distraction, the whole Trump stuff? Are we really in trouble right now? Do you? How political are you just as a person when you're watching these things? Do do you have a, a, a big sense of that world? Are you worried? What's going
1: on? It makes me concerned for our country and the human race because mm-hmm. i feel like it's like in football every once in a while there'll be a football player who like beats up his girlfriend mm-hmm. and the fans cheer for him when he comes back from his suspension uh-huh. and they don't want to believe it's real and it's mm-hmm. only because they like their team yeah and i feel like this following people blindly uh is what a lot of this is about is that that Trump changes his positions Mm -hmm. and people continue to follow him. You know, Trump's whole thing was I'm going to get rid of corporate corruption. Mm -hmm. And so then when he hired only people in these industries to run different departments, there was no outcry from his supporters who Uh said, wait a second, you were attacking Goldman Sachs. You were attacking uh, all of these lobbyists. That's what I find fascinating is bailing completely on your pitch, and no one's saying, "Fuck you, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? I forget the things he said he was going to do you know he's anti immigration and tax cuts, but the things that that he he promised that he's bailed on should be enough to bail on him you know to to raise taxes on a, a lot of people in this country and take away their health care. you would think people would be up in arms, and you think his supporters would be up in arms and eventually they will be because things will begin to affect them. but that's what really bothers me. We'll still vote vote for Roy Moore just because we want to be in charge mm-hmm. and that's that's what makes me sad like that people don't have a line where they go, you know what? I'm still not gonna vote for the pedophile yeah I, I want Republicans to win or right And I think a lot of those people aren't going to get the tax cut. They're not even the people getting the tax cut. so that's what's so bizarre. You're actually not going to benefit. I'm going to benefit. I don't want to benefit. Yeah. But you're not going to benefit from well, it. Politics always has cognitive dissonance in it. Mm-hmm. You know,
0: um, You know, people, yeah, there's these sides are taken and brains just turn off. Yeah. It's, <laughs> you know? I am so
1: right. surprised. And I do wonder, when do people go, I can't have a president that racist. I can't have a president mm-hmm. that corrupt. Or ignorant i mean this is a terrifying person because you 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 realize oh the reason why he doesn't do interviews with cbs news is he actually has no understanding of almost any issue and he can't right. expose himself and why aren't people terrified of because that because the crazy thing is with
0: partisanship the people who um you would think you want to wake up to that that's how they felt about obama you know they felt he was a danger to the country and he was trying to destroy it that he was incompetent and that he wasn't being held to account by the media that felt the thrill going up their leg you know yeah. when he was
1: elected but at I the mean, end of it they didn't go wait a second obama didn't destroy anything now you could say I know but i'm saying this is what this is what the people think they yeah.
0: think the country was destroyed during obama and thank
1: god trump yeah. came along <laughs> they got all their guns no one lost their guns right so that oh, didn't yeah. happen yeah. right the economy just got better you may want it to get better at a quicker rate but yeah. it got better there's a lot of problems still floating but there wasn't that obama's destroying your life yeah. thing that you could argue and say here's what actually happened to me yeah. you know actually immigration went down obama was actually quietly pretty aggressive about uh illegal immigration he was pretty aggressive overseas with mm-hmm. the military uh i mean he's almost like a nixon conservative yeah when you look well, at positions yeah. so yeah. so there's no accounting at the end of it like well what what did he do there, there were eight years the whole time you said well none of it's logical <laughs> yeah right and that's that's i guess my point yeah no one's informed nobody's logical and everyone is too fucking uh lazy to vote people yeah. don't vote i mean in this country half the people vote. Yeah. And so you go how come the college kids don't vote? Like I think for people like 18 to 24, 17% of people vote. Mm-hmm. How crazy is that? That kids aren't upset where they go I got to get out there. This is nuts. This is my environment. But in all fairness,
0: there's a lot of beer that has to be drunk during the exactly. <laughs> <that time laughs> in your life. Yeah,
1: I mean they're not yes. scared. I mean I if in I was in all a-
0: fairness judge, <laughs> you're being a little harsh people have there's
1: only a certain amount of hours in a day i mean if i was 21 and i thought well the environment is gonna i'm gonna be drowning in 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 pollution or in the water yeah i'm gonna probably vote for the person that's a little concerned about it because i've got a lot of years on this planet and kids don't vote yeah and sometimes it takes a while there
0: are a lot of great young people that are interested in politics and energetic um the last thing though of course is this whole this wave now of the sexual harassment and yeah. allegations that, you know, it's not only going across the country, it's hit our business yeah. in a big way. Sure. As a producer, somebody who's been around and everything, have you noticed, is there a sea change going on right now, do you think? Because I know you've been an ally and a voice out there. Yeah. We were, I remember when I was going after Cosby on my mm. show, you were a strong voice yeah. on Twitter. Sure. On that. have Like, um, how has this hit you, by the way, on a personal level? Because I know
1: you, I'm sure you know a lot of these people. Sure and you've worked with no it's it's amazing how close it gets i keep mm-hmm. i keep joking it's getting closer and closer and closer until it's just me mm-hmm. you know you get you just go what is happening yeah. but i think that something very important is happening, mm-hmm. which is that women really felt like if i speak up my career is over I was explaining this to my daughter today. I, I, I How old is your daughter? 15. I, mm-hmm. I said, we, I, I want you to understand what's happening, which is women felt like if they said, hey, Matt Lauer did this to me, that the second they said that to their boss that their career was over. Yeah, And so they didn't say anything. And it was true. Yeah. And it was true. And I said to okay. her, because uh, you're trying to get a recommendation from your last job. And so suddenly... People think you're a problem. You're a pain in the ass. Yes, you're
0: the problem because someone did something bad to you.
1: Yeah. It's And by the way, I
0: think that's the only thing where that equation works like that mm-hmm. is sexual harassment. Sure.
1: You know, where someone does something bad to you and you're the problem. If you're making people money, people just want to keep you in place. Yeah. So people aren't going to go after Cosby or Brett Radner if the cash is coming in. Yes. And if you're the person that's like, oh, by the way, he raped me, you you're costing someone money. Mm-hmm. And so the system is set up to make you afraid to stand up because then suddenly you're, you're an obstacle to making money. Mm-hmm. You, you're a pain in the ass. And, and then the next job might go like, oh, is that the, that the woman who is complaining that people are harassing her? I don't want her in here. What if she thinks someone harassed her yeah. here? And, and it, it took the courage of people like Ashley Judd to stand up so that there was a few people, And then everyone else is like, wait a second. If I stand up right now, am I not going to get in trouble? Mm -hmm. Because there's numbers. And now suddenly everyone is doing the personal accounting and going, wait a second. I got assaulted here and I got assaulted there. So it feels like this tidal wave. Uh But really it's because... Women have been silenced forever, do, do and you, now they
0: can speak. Do you think, um, just from maybe what you've observed or anything you've seen out there from maybe people you work with, that also men are starting to look at themselves and their behavior at all? Oh, I think. And, I think everything is going to change. It's the women speaking is is yes, it's a great moment and all that, but the other part of it is men have to look at their behavior. Men have to be scared. I mean, the yes. truth
1: is that you have to be scared. And I think what happens now... When you say scared, what do you, you mean? You have to be scared about losing their jobs and losing uh, the respect of their peers. Mm-hmm. So if if there was like guy, being Like fear can help them do the right thing? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Because now if there's a guy and there's a, a new woman in the office, mm-hmm. for the first time, he, he's going to think, if I act inappropriately and she speaks up, I might lose this job. Yeah. And that has never happened before. That's right. just Someone not who happens. might otherwise do that. Absolutely. Right. Because, you know, on a movie set, you've got producers and directors and stars and different staff people. And then you have a lot of very young people breaking into the business. Yeah. And they're all very vulnerable yes. to predators. Completely. Uh, uh, they want to break in. They want to be seen as helpful. They want to get a recommendation for the next right. job. And now, if you're working on a movie... And you, you look at someone and think, oh, I, maybe I could uh, hit on them. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of people- You're putting
0: yourself in Kevin Spacey's head, right?
1: Now. Yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> 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 then you think, you know what? I don't want to be Kevin Spacey. I don't want to lose think, my no. house of cards. Yes. And uh, I think that ultimately that's very healthy uh, that people feel like we're allowed to speak up. At the same time, it's mm-hmm. a very messy situation. We still have a lot of situations where- no one's there to witness what happens and how do we determine what really happened and right. are people ever overreacting Are things uh, uh, you know, people's memories changed by time. And that is a real thing that also no one wants to talk about, mm-hmm. which is it's scary because you know, we have violent predators, but mainly we have a lot of jerks yes. and sexually inappropriate. Well, the people. jerk
0: culture is the thing that is hard for women to do anything about because then People think they're the asshole for not going
1: along with the jerk. Yes, culture. it's very difficult. I yes. mean, someone was saying to me, uh, you know, what if, uh, you know, um, you know, I get a complaint because a guy is staring at a woman's breasts. Yeah, I don't see it. Like, what do I do? Mm-hmm. How do I deal with that complaint? Yeah. And you know, there's there's going to be a billion of those because men have not realized that when you treat women as an object, you, mm-hmm. you're taking away, you know, their ability to work on the same level as you you're demeaning them you're Mm -hmm. you're putting them down and yes there are some women you know that are like fuck off but a lot of people quit the business yeah because you know when i first got into the business i got threatened by a powerful person Mm -hmm. uh over a credit issue and i didn't know what to do and i backed down because he threatened my career Mm -hmm. and i think that men haven't realized uh that if I say like to one of my employees today, to a woman, Hey, can I masturbate in front of uh, you? I've ruined her life. Yeah. Even if she says no, and even if I don't do it, the fact that I let her know that's how I think of her, right? She might quit at some point because of that. She might actually give up working in this industry because yes. of that. And I don't think men have realized that even the, you know, what they thought was, you know, an okay question. Mm-hmm. Whether it's hitting on someone or something farther, actually was already harassment. That the yeah, question, it's a violation. The question is harassment. It's yes. it's not about that she said yes or no. You're not allowed to ask the question.
0: Yes, you know, I agree. Judd Apatow, black on the air. Thanks, Judd. Thank you.